This is the Fire These Times, and I'm your host, Julia Yup. In this third season, we will be exploring internationalist solidarity, prefigurative politics, solar punk, and how to tackle some of the most pressing challenges of our times. Each episode will be on one or more of these topics. But before getting into today's topic, I wanted to quickly tell you that you can support this podcast for as little as two or five dollars a month on Patreon.com/FireThesetimes. That is Patreon.com/FireThesetimes. If you cannot donate, you can still support by sharing it with your friends and families and leaving a review wherever you listen to podcasts. This helps it get more exposure and introduce it to more folks. That's it for me today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I shall explain briefly what we're going to try and do here. I figured I've been doing this pain in the ass PhD for like seven years now, on and off, part time. Uh, the drama is kind of more well known than I would have ever wanted it. It's given me f- like very uh, accidentally useful skills to <laughs> to analyze TV series and movies and and stuff like that. And to the point that I do think, to the extent that this is accurate, obviously listeners would have to this to decide. I think the critiques or the the um, different frameworks and stuff like that can be quite interesting to discuss as they reveal quite a lot about like the world we live in usually. And recently I finished watching Seinfeld, uh, which I was watching with my partner, with my wife. And I wanted to talk about it because I have, you know, I have a thing for sitcoms. I, I find them fascinating. I really love them. Like I don't I rarely come out of sitcoms saying this was the best thing I've ever seen or whatnot. But when they're well done or when they when there's something about them that is insightful, let's put it that way, I end up using them as like tools of analysis. I use them as examples to make something that might be more abstract, more relatable, you know, too abstract, more relatable or whatever. And I grew up um, watching Friends. That was a huge thing in the house. Uh, it was at the time when people still had DVDs. And it was sort of the DVD that, uh, you know, was sort of always there in the background. My sister was addicted to it. I got addicted to it at some point, to the point that uh, my partner thinks my my memory of Friends episodes, which I do, I've memorized most of them by heart, is is kind of freaky. And I, I assume it is because my memory is not that amazing usually. But with certain things, like I literally rewatched Friends in Spanish because I had known the the dialogue so like by heart that I was able to associate this is when this this what this means and whatnot, and it helped my Spanish. The jokes didn't always translate well, obviously, but this was like Really, like you can think of it as a cultural touchstone for me. But obviously, and this is what we're going to talk about, because I had a similar experience when it came with Seinfeld. Obviously, Seinfeld coming before Friends, I sort of see where a lot of the Friends stuff came from. And but what's kind of interesting, and this is what I want us to get into, is that you uh, obviously have been really into Seinfeld. You're kind of the one who persuaded me to get into it, and. At the same time, how the way we watch it, I think, is fair to say, is a bit different or very different than how maybe other folks watch it in the sense that in many ways we're not the target audience. You know, same for Friends, same for pretty much 99% of sitcoms we've ever seen, which is not the target audience. So I want us to get into that a bit. Talk to us about like your relationship with that show. And obviously before doing that, because I'm a very professional podcaster, why don't you introduce yourself, Ayman? <laughs> Thank you. Um, 
No, and I think there's a, first of all, hello, thank you. Uh, my name is Ivan McAdam. Um, I'm a writer from Beirut. Uh, I have a degree in screenwriting, so I have some professional insight into some of these things we'll talk about. Mm -hmm. But otherwise, I did grow up watching Seinfeld. And so, like you mentioned, Friends uh, on DVD, but it was also on TV. Mm -hmm. A lot. Reruns after reruns after reruns all the time on just basic cable because we would have well i don't know if the term basic cable is correct but we just have a satellite we'd pay really cheap for it we'd actually like steal it essentially mm -hmm. um and so i grew up watching a lot like a lot of people not just in lebanon but in the periphery in general grew up watching a lot of american sitcoms from the 90s from the 2000s so like fresh prince of bel-air cheers mash uh according to jim this formula of you know working class overweight white guy with an ostensibly attractive wife with two and a half kids um i've seen a thousand versions of those uh some of them the americans don't know at all because these are things that didn't sell in america so they just sold it to you know to us <laughs> yeah to anybody who would take it and so Seinfeld was huge for me. And I do love the fact that uh, we'll talk about it because we're not the target audience. But growing up, my idol was George Costanzo. Mm -hmm. And now that you've watched the show, you can see how funny that is. You know, growing mm -hmm. up as a uh, like I, I'm not big into identity politics. This isn't necessarily how I identify fully. But, you know, as a Druze, queer Lebanese boy, like growing up in the post-war era or whatever, George Costanza as like a short, insecure, balding, fat, Jewish, you know, um, whatever guy. <laughs> Not really an idle figure, but I found him so funny. I found him so relatable and I would emulate him uh, quite literally. And yeah, I think there's a lot to talk about because we're not the target audience, but it was massive for me. Uh, I've also memorized quite a lot of Seinfeld. And in retrospect, it's, um, it's interesting. It, it's strange that it, it has such an effect on me and that, um, yeah, I'm excited to talk a lot about these different aspects of it. It is because uh, I, will, I will try and do a number of these on different topics, different things I got into growing up and whatnot that I, I do feel has some kind of resonance with a wider audience. So this could be your friends, your Seinfeld, which is what we're going to do here. I just did one on Star Trek with just a gender. Um, uh, definitely will do a Harry Potter one because that was a huge thing growing up and a Lord of the Rings one as well. But there is something very interesting about not being the target audience. And, you know, in many ways, I can genuinely attribute watching those types of shows. For me, it was Friends, a huge thing. Boy Meets World was a huge thing as well growing up. Then there was, you know, the, some of the Disney stuff like That's So Raven and stuff that honestly I forgot most of it. And other stuff like Home Improvement and, and uh, some shows like that that, yeah, would basically be on TV after I come back from school, essentially. At the same time, shows like Friends and, as I said, Bonin and those, in many ways is how I became really good at English, yeah. <laughs> at English language. Yeah. Uh, I was number one in class. I was... English was always this thing I took completely for granted. Like I, I did not, I don't know anything about past, present, practice. I have no idea what this yeah. means. I know they exist, but I don't know if you tell me, is this, you know, how to conjugate? I have no idea. Mm. It's just completely, I like, like, it's the only language that I learned 
that's not my native language that I learned by complete absorption, basically. And so because of that, there are certain things that I may maybe have said, or in the sense that there are certain expressions that I use and whatnot, that I have no idea where they come from, or I didn't think about the contexts. You know, I would have this weird baseball reference, and I've never seen a single baseball match in my life, you know, stuff like that. And Seinfeld is a I, I see now how it's in, in some sense kind of been the archetype of, of that um, of that genre, of that genre of TV shows that I ended up associating with why New York is such a familiar mm. site in my head. And I've never been there uh, in a way that even London wasn't because London is another city that's like overrepresented in media, obviously. But I've actually lived in London. And when I, when I went there, there was a bit of familiarity, but... I would say not as much as New York because New York, like in many weird ways, like I would literally know certain addresses. Like I would know what this is roughly, you know, and I've never been there. So, okay. The being kind of the, not the recipients of not the target audience, right? Uh, being uh, cultural consumers, as you said, like even on a global scale, our region for the most part, like 99% of the time, uh, we're not the ones producing mass content, mass culture, mass media, that sort of thing. We're the ones receiving it, you know? Uh, we may be the, like our industries, it's like, I forgot why I read this, but it's like we're into dubbing and subtitling, right? Rather than producing. It's kind of changing slightly yeah. with like Netflix and stuff. And there are some interesting things happening, of course. But generally speaking, that's still true. Like the massive things that pop up tend to be from the U.S., from time to time, you have like a Casa de Papel from Spain, or you have like, you know, I don't know, a Squid Game from South Korea. You'll have certain things that are from outside of the usual center of that, which is the Anglo duo, like the, the Americans and the Brits. But not being the target audience also means that there are certain things that I end up kind of identifying with, with a certain character or a certain trait or even a certain comment or whatever, that can be weirdly enough can be damaging mm -hmm. in the sense that this is a whole james baldwin thing like he didn't know he was black until like the age of four or five or something and he would watch he, when he watched it that that's a famous example he's given i think it was gary cooper like this whole like cowboy shooting native americans and he would identify with the cowboy mm -hmm. until at one at one point he he understood that he is actually the native american and this mm -hmm. metaphor that the movie is trying to push forward or whatnot this, this narrative and Obviously, it's not as dramatic in my case when it comes to Friends or Seinfeld, I mean. But a lot of the shows that I did watch, and I think we watched and whatnot, especially post-9-11, post-2003, had, and to many extent still have, lots of not nice portrayal about folks like us. Yeah. And I found, and I don't know if we can kind of open up a conversation on this, but I found that... I was less, off not offended, the, the, I've never been offended by these things. I've just been maybe bothered or like disgusted or whatever. But when it's overt uh, Islamophobia or even anti-Arab racism, the fact that I did not grow up Muslim and whatnot kind of gives me this cover to, when I was younger, I mean, to tell, oh, they're not actually talking about me. This isn't about me as a protection. Yeah. But when there are shows like in Lost or in Community, where they're actually trying to have a positive Arab character, but the character isn't an Arab, or at the very least doesn't even speak Arabic. Uh, in both cases, I believe, were Indians, the ones I mentioned. The bad Arabic that is spoken, the fact that it's clearly not good Arabic, it's like Fusha, which is like modern Sinai Arabic, but like 
not really spoken very well and no one actually talks this, this way anyway. That tells me something that is kind of more, I don't know if the term is hurtful, but more painful to, to kind of absorb uh, or to internalize than the, as I said, overt racist mm-hmm. portrayals. Because overt racist portrayals, oh, well, those are racist pieces of shit. Like, fuck them. I, I, I don't have to, to spend too much time thinking about them. I just need to oppose them and I think this is shit. Mm. But when they try and do something, quote unquote, good, and they clearly don't put the effort, the research effort into just making it basically okay. And that's the same thing of like how so many of those TV shows and movies have Arabic written, you know, from left to right and the, the letters are broken and stuff like that. It just tells me that literally we don't matter. Mm. Like quite literally, it does not matter whatsoever if at any point we find this uh, bad or like insulting or or whatever because we're not the target audience. At the same time, those various shows, of course, the main target audience tend to be Americans and whatever, but they get exported uh, because that's that's the Mm -hmm. nature of business. And we end up consuming them. And in many ways, more of us consume them than Americans consume them or Brits consume them. Certainly in the case for Brits, most British TV shows non-Brits are, you know, more numerical, like we just, we see, more numerous, sorry, than, than Brits. And for American, many American shows as well, Casa de Papel, same thing and whatnot. And so that creates a sort of like, oh, you have the American friends, the US friends, the US audience friends with like all of the internal contradictions, the transphobia, the homophobia, the misogyny, the classist stuff, all of that stuff, same for Seinfeld. But then when it translates, right, or it crosses a border, we might miss some of that uh, nuance, basically. Mm. We might miss like, Oh, actually, yeah, this was transphobic in season one and or, or whatever. And certainly the racist stuff as well, because it tends to be US focused and all of that stuff. So what does, uh, talk to us a bit more, uh, talk to us a bit about your relationship with Seinfeld, given that, because obviously we've been talking about it on and off for like months now. Hmm. Um, how do you sort of relate to it? Well, so yeah, everything you said, I definitely relate with and, uh, I think something that's really important to mention because time feels really weird these days. We're talking about a time before YouTube and social media. So like genuinely everything that was on TV, that was it. Mm-hmm. Um, we really didn't have much else to go by. So like these mass media productions are the main things we're consuming. And genuinely that was my experience that um, I grew up watching these shows and identifying with these characters and essentially, I mean, if, if James Baldwin was saying that, you know, it, it wasn't, I mean, his experience of racialization is much more immediate being, you know, an African-American, but I generally thought that I was white. I thought I was an American until the age of like, until I went to the U.S. And then I realized like, holy shit, I have no idea who these people are. Um, who the hell is Jessica and Bradley? Um But uh, yeah, growing up, I would watch things like Family Guy. Mm-hmm. And I was so obsessed with understanding every single reference, you know, every single time they brought up um, what's, I don't know, some show from the 50s or something from the 80s or whatever. And so, I mean, the same thing for me. I mean, my accent is quite uh, American. I did grow up in an international school. And so I had some like American teachers. But still, compared to most of my classmates, I still developed a stronger American accent. Um because of my affinity for these things, you know, and I, I really thought that I was just, you know, in Lebanon in like an incubator. But the the things that I really identify with are all these characters I'm seeing on TV and that and also as like a closeted queer person, you know, and seeing these sort of like 
oh, that's a place that I can go and be myself. Um, but yeah, obviously with all the problematic natures of these things, um, I really picked them up. And so aside from having fluent and perfect English or whatever, there are phrases that I'm only now discovering are really funny because my, you know, Austrian husband doesn't understand them. You know, oh, you're a chip off the old block or, you know, oh, that's no skin off my teeth. I don't know. Just random There's shit. There's so many baseball references. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. First base, second base, like the concept of that and Joe DiMaggio. I don't know. Um, so there was definitely that. And, and for me, the first time I really reckoned with that, I think, was with reading Edward Said. Because he talks about um, the Lone Ranger and Tonto, you know, and that he identifies because the main character, the text of it is you identify with the Lone Ranger. But mm -hmm. he as a Palestinian discovered that he has much more in common, actually, with the fate of Tonto, with this Native American, with this indigenous American. Yeah. Um, and so for me, there was a lot of that dissonance growing up. Um, there was a clear, I think I remember watching the Hurt Locker when it came out and finding myself kind of offended because that's pretty immediate, you know, yeah. but, but I could overlook a lot of the Arab phobia, a lot of the racism and the Islamophobia in Family Guy and whatever. Cause it's like, ah, yeah, yeah. And again, this is a time of the war on terror. This is a time when it really wasn't cool to be Arab at all. And whatever, you know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. And as Lebanese, and as whatever, and as a light-skinned person, there's like sort of so much distance from it. I'm not that type of Arab, or whatever. Until I discover that they literally, they do not have that distinction. Yeah, this yeah. is our distinction that we're trying to do to it, to protect ourselves from whatever. So, yeah, I, I love this. I, I love thinking about Boy Meets World and sitcoms and all these things. Seinfeld in specific... Let's get into it. Yes. Because Seinfeld for me is distinct from all these shows because it's obviously got a lot to do with these uh, all these things, but there's also a way of living that I generally still go by that I really love, which is this very like minimalist um, sort of way of being with friends with each other in a way that's how do i describe it okay do you remember the episode of the chat it kind of feels a bit like how we relate to friends in lebanon like you know yeah, yeah which episode yeah, yeah. no so that's the thing it's like my favorite thing of all time and how i spent most of my time in beirut was going to cafes and just sitting and talking yeah and so i mean i know that sounds a bit more like friends but friends there's like events there's things that are mm -hmm. happening there's love relations between them um and uh, yeah, but with Seinfeld, quite genuinely, it's the emphasis on the things that are happening between the things that are happening, right? Mm -hmm. It's this sort of nothingness. It's funnily called uh, the show about nothing, although sure, it, it does have it does have a, an actual premise. I don't know if you know. It is actually like the idea is is um, the show is about how a comedian comes up with his material, you know? Yeah. So. That episode of the Chinese restaurant for me is quite genius. You know, they're waiting on a table and the, the 20 minutes is just them fucking around. It's just them having fun with each other, talking, making jokes, doing what's called, hey, I bet you, you know, I'll give you $50 if you go and take a spring roll from that table. I love that shit. It's, and 
even from such a distant uh, experience as mine, and and even still today, actually, with all the trauma and with all the bullshit that's happened in the last few years, genuinely, this is something that I still hold true, which is we really do not have much that's tangible in our lives, except for the people around us and our friends and our family. And it reminds me of a poem that's in this Swedish film called uh, Songs from the Second Floor. I forget what the poem is called. But one of the lines is, it's, it's taken from um, the Sermon on the Mount. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a sort of subversion of it. And the line is, blessed is he who sits down. <laughs> and this is my favorite thing, sitting down. And, and this is why I hated London and why I do love Vienna and I love Miss Beirut. Is just that sitting down in a cafe, we've got nothing. You know, we're all going to die. There's nothing really that's urgent. I mean, there is, but like, let's just sit down for two, three hours and talk shit, you know, Mm -hmm. and talk philosophy, talk politics, talk whatever. Ultimately, it's meaningless. And there is a kind of existentialism to the show, to that kind of thing, but also a sincerity. So sitting down, being present, just having fun with each other. Like there is no real, um, there's nothing we can really resolve or fix. And this is why I love psychoanalysis. This is why I love like discussion. This is why I love, um, and it's just, it's just fun, uh, having fun with each other with nothing really in our hands, except that our minds and our like attachment to each other. And it's very rare to find. I do have friends who I can do this with, where I can just pick up the phone and just instantly start having this back and forth of like, why don't you call me anymore? You know, it's like, what do you mean? I called you last week. He was like, yeah, you missed called me. That wasn't an actual call. And then the back and forth. Um, that's something that I generally, there's one phrase in the early seasons of Seinfeld that I still use constantly, which is um, when Jerry wants to go do his laundry and George is like, I don't want to go do your laundry with you. And Jerry's like, come on, be a come with guy. Mm-hmm. A come with guy. I still, I love it. And genuinely, the closest people in my life are these people who are just more than happy to just come with you. Because whatever, I'm going to do laundry. But the important thing is we're together. We're talking. We're having fun. We don't have to go and do something and watch an opera or whatever. Um and even then, when they go watch an opera, the fun bits are when they're standing in line, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so Seinfeld, in that very specific way, is something for me that uh, I still actually live by, the sort of emphasis on relationships, on talking, on um, the quirkiness of whatever, you know? It's having fun with each other. There's not really any plot, because the plot is the less interesting thing, you know? It is the best episodes. I mean, those that are most memorable, even like I've watched Seinfeld once, though the most memorable ones are the, you know, the parking lot one and the contest and, uh, you know, stuff where basically, yeah, again, it is about nothing, but it is about the, what happens during that nothing, right? Like I I did a literal entire episode with a historian, Susan Crane, who wrote a book called the history of nothing. Yeah, and it's it was it's like the book is fantastic. It's literally about like what do we even mean when we say nothing? Like nothing happened, or nothing's going on here, or this is about nothing, 
or like I'm not I'm, I'm literally doing nothing how the fuck can you be doing nothing that's literally not possible what I've been finding really interesting recently like thinking about all of these shows and and even movies and whatnot is that the things that kind of you relate to and this is a universe I think it's a universal thing that's why those the American shows that do this very well, or the British ones as well, I think do translate in that sense, is the whole hanging out. I mean, that's the power. That's Friends, right? Mm-hmm. Friends, the entire thing of Friends is that they have all of these different backgrounds, and I mean, different, they're all white, but in the sense that, you know, they have uh, different jobs and, and whatnot, and some of them are kind of more middle class and others more working class, like Phoebe compared to Ross or whatever. And, but really, ultimately, like, 80% of the time, they're just sitting on the couch in, you know, Central Park, that cafe. Yeah. And I find this fascinating because there is a cafe in Brumana in Lebanon called <laughs> Unicorn Cafe oh. that is um, literally modeled after Central Park. The couch is there, you know, that sort of thing. And that's where I, because it's next to my house, uh, that's where I would go. That's why I wrote my proposal to do the master's in London. That's why I did a lot of just my writing because I just enjoyed being there. I didn't quite, in, like, I don't know if they listen to this, but it, some of the decor is tacky, like it is kind of just transplanted, it kind of feels. But the idea is 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 nice. I like that idea. I actually think there's no need to copy-paste friends because Lebanon is entirely, like most of the cafes are already doing that. That's kind of already a thing. I've been thinking a lot, and that's why I want to do a number of these episodes, that when I think of like Harry Potter and how I grew up on these books, the main things that I remember aren't even the actions and them breaking out of a bank and killing the Dark Lord and spoilers, I guess, whatever. And, you know, stuff like that. It's uh, it's when they're hanging out. They're hanging yeah. out around the table in the, in the mess hall, whatever it's called. They're hanging out in Gryffindor, uh, a common room. You know, they're hanging out at Hagrid's. That's a huge thing, right? All of those things, or even, even in Lord of Rings, which is like 80% adventures, the most memorable stuff for me are like they're chilling at the pub in the Shire, you know, stuff like that. Like basically when there isn't that action, because if you only have that action, then you have those movies that are all about like adrenaline, adrenaline pumps, you know, they're very meaningless for the most part. You kind of watch it once you've already forgotten it by the time you're done. And it doesn't kind of stick in, in that sense. But all of these shows, Seinfeld being one of them, because Seinfeld, it's like, because there is Seinfeld, the movie, and there is the character in the movie, and then there is the actor playing that character, uh, who is obviously named Jay Seinfeld, and then there is the real Seinfeld, who has lived during Seinfeld, the show, show and since Seinfeld. And you can sort of see even that disconnect in many ways. And the fact that at the end of the day, many, many of the jokes that he was making during the whole stand-up at the beginning of episodes were genuinely not funny. No. They just not smart. And they're, they're, it's like... 80% of the time is, haha, like that working person, isn't he stupid? You know, it's like stuff like that. And so that's completely unrelatable to me. But then the absurdity of Kramer and George and Elaine and, and you know, all of the relationship between them and how that even works, no one even knows because, like, do they even respect one another? It's not even clear, you know? But it's, it's one of those things where it kind of works. And it, that's element of i just literally finished watching the good place now like two hours ago uh yeah the good place it's on netflix um it's also four different characters and they end up being very close and all of that stuff i like the idea of different backgrounds different whatnot as cheesy as it is and sometimes it is simplistic sometimes it is problematic i like the just i like the premise of that that it is possible to come from different backgrounds and somehow to transcend all of that i do think this matters 
Mm-hmm. Now, that being said, there's something in most of these shows, honestly, The Office comes to mind as well. I will try and do a specific thing about The Office because I got quite obsessed with it like a couple of years ago, uh, the US one. Yeah. Um, because The Office, what's fascinating about it is that uh, The Office doesn't matter. <laughs> Like literally their job is pointless and they all know it's pointless. The director is kind of a moron, like everyone knows this and he's kind of the butt of the joke. I do think it's problematic how in the US version compared to the British version, as much as Ricky Gervais is is an annoying douchebag, but in the US version, uh, there's a kind of a redemptive narrative around the boss. And that's that's a very American thing. The boss is almost always towards the end, someone redeemable. And those class hierarchies especially end up becoming, oh, it's fine if you're a multimillionaire and you're just a worker. We're all humans in the end, but like we don't do anything about the fact that there's a multimillionaire and a worker, you know, stuff like that. But I, it's very interesting to me that because we know like there's actual research on, on the matter that the office became super popular in the early days of the pandemic, basically when offices were closed. I just listened to this episode of um, Seriously Wrong, which is a fantastic podcast. Um, I would try and get that guest actually on because she was talking about the office a lot. But she mentioned as like in I think twenty twenty one or twenty twenty there was fifty billion hours of the office uh, watched, streamed, or like an incredibly huge uh, amount of time watched. And that's very interesting because the thing about the office is okay, it's this thing that in twenty twenty we lost. Like most folks can't go back to the office and stuff like that. Those who did go to the office, but really it's the fact that they were all hanging out. Like again, 90% of what they do, although it's a paper making company, whatever, they do nothing related to paper. Not 19% of the time. It's tanks, it's pointless meetings, it's jokes, it's whatnot, it's meeting your soulmate and becoming best friends with your former enemy and you know, stuff like that. And that's very interesting to me because some of it feels intentional, like an anti-work ethic, which I, I am genuinely really into. But and some of it feels accidental. And when it feels accidental, it's almost like, you know, that meme of uh, Republicans or in the US or conservatives almost getting something right and then missing the point. Like mm. saying something like, okay. if we cancel debt to all students, that means, I don't know, they won't work as, I don't know, something like that. And then um, in the replies, you'll have something like, yeah, that's the point. You know, it's like they don't get the thing that they're threatened by, essentially. It's, the, uh, it's a page called like uh, conservatives. Uh, accidentally proving communism or something like that. Yeah, something like, like that, yeah. something like that, yeah, yeah. Um, so I find that interesting. Like just those contradictions is what I find interesting in TV series because it's it's consumable, right? Like that's the point of those, of those sitcoms. Like the episodes have to be enjoyable. Like there has to be a, you know, it has to ha- kind of end on some kind of note that makes you want to watch more and whatnot. But during that, those 20 or 40 minutes, it also have to keep it, they have to keep your attention going, right? They have to keep your focus on on the show. So all of this, with all of this said, how watching it the third time, fourth time is it, that's not really what does it. What does it is when do I watch? Like, did I rewatch it five years later, ten years later, stuff like that? Because so much happens in the meantime. You're a different person and all of that stuff. But also, probably you've read more on it. Maybe there's like some more nuance you've missed at the first time. That second time you catch it or whatnot. So the, the, did that happen to you when it came to Seinfeld? Okay, there's a lot to unpack there, actually, uh, because first of all, I feel like I love The Office, and <clears throat> through The Office, I do have a lot of like comparative analysis with the British mm-hmm. and the American, because I do love uh, British shows, and British TV has very different motives and styles and whatever. 
Um, I, I actually, I, I made a note that I want us to get into U.S. British stuff because that's fascinating. But let's pin this so, for now. So mainly the fact that they're like the British office is two seasons, six episodes a season. And that is the norm. Most British shows, it's uh, six, ep- like a season is six episodes and they run for two seasons. Right. And this is Faulty Towers. This is uh, Peep Show, even though it runs for longer. But it's six episode seasons and usually two. And the British office, spoilers for those that haven't watched it, is fucking depressing. Yeah. It is like social realism. It is more like just there's so much more like sounds of the fax machines, boring. This existentialist dread of office life is much more present. You know, you have Don, the character who is essentially Pam, saying, you know, um, I don't want to wake up one morning and realizing that, you know, five years have gone by. Um, and I'd rather be, or I think they do bring this up. I'd rather be halfway up a ladder, uh, or at the bottom of a ladder. I want to get up with rather than half away of a ladder. I don't want to. And in the end, they all lose, you yeah. know, Jim, uh, uh, Tim doesn't get with what's it called? Uh, Ricky Gervais, the, the boss gets fired in a very depressing scene they would where answer. he's humanized. And it's just this moment where he's like, please don't do this. It's so depressing. It's so depressing. And that's it. And there's not going to be a reunion. There's not going to be an SNL short where it's the office, but in Japan that exists, by the way, it's kind of racist, but it's kind of funny. Uh, but anyway, um, and that is something that's kind of unique with American capitalist uh, productions of this. It's never ending. Right. Mm-hmm. And so a good example is the fucking the Simpsons which I highly recommend. There's a video essay by, um, he used to be called Cuck Philosophy. He's called like Jake something philosophy now. He's not right wing. Cuck is like a 18th century philosopher term for domination. But anyway, about zombie Simpsons. It's on its 30th season. And The Simpsons originally was a show criticizing American cultural consumerist, uh, you know, media stuff, you know, like, it's become uh, a caricature of itself. If you remember early Simpsons, um, there was a lot of jokes about Krusty the Clown, right? There's a Krusty the Clown cup. There's a Krusty the Clown uh, doll that tries to kill everybody. You know, it's made of lead paint. Um, but And now there are the same things, but for Bart Simpson. And, and if you watch it, it's completely unfamiliar because the point of the show is that there's just more and more and more and more. This uh, brings me back to this idea of the laugh track, right? A lot of people have theories about why our laugh tracks so popular, so present. Some people think that it's it allows you to know when a joke lands, you know, when you're meant to laugh. Uh, a good example, I don't know if you've ever seen like Friends, like a scene of Friends where they've removed it. The yeah, yeah, when they remove it, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's quite cringe. It's quite painful. Yeah. Like that's not yeah. funny. I think a part of the reason that the laugh track is so popular isn't necessarily that you know it makes bad material good but it connects to the same concept of why there's you know 180 episodes of friends and why we keep coming back to it it's because it really gives you the sense of being a part of a community being surrounded by people and these shows are designed for people who've come back home from work who don't want to think about anything 
who just want to kind of pass time while they're eating dinner and whatever. And it's not meant to engage you critically or radicalize you or anything. It is meant to pacify. It is meant to just be this kind of thing that you can infinitely consume. And so that laugh track uh, assists with that. It's just this feeling that you're not alone in, you know, in your apartment. Um, and again, it, it supplements this kind of model of the American work life. Um, and uh, it, it can kind of give you a bit of this feeling of being with friends and literally the name of friends, because it is, the name of the friends isn't that they're friends, but they're your friends. You know, you feel close to Joey. Sorry. <laughs> I forgot that. you're. Anyway, you feel close to Phoebe. You feel close to Chandler. You know this person, you know. And so with Seinfeld, it's the same thing. I feel very close to these characters and familiar. And I do want to mention, because it's, I don't want to discuss Seinfeld without mentioning this. Um, Jerry Seinfeld is a piece of shit, right? Larry yes. David is a piece of shit. He's yeah, a sexist. Yeah. He's a he's a misogynist. He's a classist. He's Larry David's a multimillionaire now, right? And so, and Jerry also, Seinfeld, I think, is the most paid comedian, or like in the top five. It's oh, like yeah, he's yeah, multi sure. hundred million or whatever. Like it's ridiculous. But his stand up is sexist as fuck. It's super yeah, heteronormative. Yeah. And what I find myself doing when watching it, rewatching it, I just skip the first. The, I skip the the stand up. You know, yeah, yeah, it's just dumb. Yeah, yeah. It's just dumb. But then that brings up what you were mentioning earlier, which is, yeah, how do I still can watch it, especially as a queer person, especially as an anti-Zionist. And like, they do have jokes, they do have Islamophobic jokes, they do have um, kind of, I mean, it's, it's explicitly apolitical, but in that it gets very political. Um, and so then we start talking about that sort of like distinction between the artist and the art, right? And for me, that's been a big issue, specifically with these things I grew up with when I was essentially much more mentally colonized. And so Bob Dylan is another example. And I still really love Bob Dylan. I still listen to him all the time. But he is also a really hardcore Zionist, you know? Mm -hmm. He wrote a song called Neighborhood Bully, where he satirically or like sardonically talks about, you know, oh, his neighbors want to kill him, and he's the neighborhood bully, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then literally all these myths of he, he turned the desert into uh, a castle or whatever. It's mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm. fuck. So it is difficult, but I think it definitely does bring up a lot of need for community. And then when we grew up with these things, uh, the distinction between the art and the artist is definitely something that I know you deal with, um, and we'll talk about more with, with Harry Potter, because J.K. Yeah. Rowling is a is a turf, you know, horrible person who just has like a literal obsession. She's a, um, she's literally obsessed. Like it's 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 like bizarre. It's other scary. Than, Have you heard yeah. about her new book? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, I yeah. know. And there's like there's a trans character in it. Was like something bad. Like I, yeah, it's is a murder. Is yeah, it's yeah, yeah. The like, it's, initial it's, like yeah. transphobic and and homophobic myth of the duplicitous, um, you know, person who is pretending to be whatever just so they can mm -hmm. get into women's spaces mm -hmm. and like mm -hmm. there's a there's like this fifth, 1950s um infomercial uh you know careful that man may be a homosexual murderer <laughs> and so anyway uh yeah i think one thing actually that i will talk about as well 
which is this connection between the British and the American stuff. The American, uh, and I find this super interesting, and this is something that is discussed in this um, uh, video essay uh, by um, this philosophy guy, which is the return to the status quo. Yeah. Right? Which is everything is resolved at the end of the episode, and then we get back, and it's, you know, we're back to square one. And so it's fine. Don't worry about it. Uh, no matter how bad things will get, we go back to the next episode, and it's fine. Mm. Friends breaks that a little bit in terms of there is the Rachel Ross thing, there is the Chandra uh, uh, Monica thing. Like, it does sort of, there's a serial. Um, oh, fun fact. Um, in screenwriting terms, or in, like, filmmaking terms, there's a distinction between series and serials. So series are um, like Cheers, like a fr- mm. like fam- like Sy- uh, Simpsons, and like Seinfeld. Nothing changes. Every episode mm. is what's called in a serial. It's like Lost. You know, you mm. do have to watch every episode. Uh, and so Friends was interesting because it included a bit of a serial element, but mostly at the end of the season. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but so that return to the status quo is very reactionary because essentially it's like things are fine. It's just these these like minor contrivances that get in the way, but ultimately, when we go back to the norm, um, things are okay. And this is why The Simpsons was super like radical in a way, because the status quo wasn't quo, it wasn't good. Mm. You know, you had an abusive, alcoholic, uh, stupid father figure. Um, you had a corrupt mayor. You had a billionaire. Whatever, whatever, like it's ingrained into the show that the status quo is not quo. Um, but for mo- the most part, like, you know, things are fine mm-hmm. and it's just nice. It's just, and I can rewatch the office. I rewatch it all the time. <laughs> and I find it so fascinating that during the, what's it called? The pandemic, it wasn't whatever. My husband can't watch it. Cause he's like, I'm in the office all day. Why would I want to come home and watch more of the office? That's the thing, because that's how it became popular. It became popular because lots of folks will go to the office and then go back home and watch the office. And there is something very dystopian about that as well. Like at the end of the day, you know, there's this, um, I did this episode with uh, Sharia Talirani on prison literature and focusing on Syria. And actually, was it in that episode? No, no, it was the episode with Daniel Kurd on on authoritarianism, uh, Palestine, Qatar, all of that stuff. And there is this concept of tenfis. Tenfis is very interesting for those who don't know. It's literally like letting the air out right, like from a balloon or whatever. And the idea is that Arab authoritarian regimes especially would allow certain flexibilities from time to time to sort of allow folks to let off steam. A lot of activists, writers, they were, you know, they would allow like a book salon, that sort of thing, and very specific topics that are otherwise considered subversive or whatever would be tolerated for a certain period of time in certain contexts in a limited way and that sort of thing. And the idea is that it's it's Tenfis. Now, the kind of flip side of Tenfis is that you can sort of see it in a bit cynical way, like, oh, clearly nothing matters if, if even they have incorporated. It's like the whole like incorporation, incorporating anti-capitalist ethics because it sells well, you know, that ridiculous Pepsi commercial, you know, that sort of thing. Mm. Um, but the thing about Tenfis is that sometimes it gets out of hand. Like they would allow certain things to happen. Like they would allow a pro-Palestine march uh, in uh, Damascus like uh, 20 years ago, which was very rare, but from time to time, or one in Cairo or whatever. And sometimes it sort of gets out of hand because that in many cases, that's what the episode with Dana was, like with many folks that 
pro-Palestine march in Qatar, let's say, or pro-Palestine activism in general in Qatar, would be the first and sometimes only um, politicization exp- like experience that, let's say, Qatari may have. I'm simplifying a bit, but that, that tends sometimes to be the case. And what's interesting about this concept in, in, the kind of, in the context of what we're talking about is that this is why I find it very fascinating that even when they are trying to satirize the office, let's say in the office, they're sort of not entirely able to escape it either. Like at the end of the day, uh, minor spoilers, although honestly, even if you know how the office ends, it's still funny to watch it. Uh, the, the US one I'm talking. Um, it sort of doesn't matter who becomes boss because that was like an entire thing. And when uh, two of the main characters want to leave, the boss uh, who becomes the boss, like fake, no, he's not fake, but he actually fires them. And the reason why he fires them is so that they can get a severance package. Mm-hmm. Like the boss is complicit with the employees against the system that makes him the boss in the first place. Mm-hmm. You know, it's this weird um, kind of critique that sort of kind of works, but also doesn't. <laughs> you know, it's both at the same time, because obviously the critique there is that, well, if this is a pointless job, why are we still in it? You know, yeah. but that's that's the case and we have this uh, internal tension being resolved internally and so because it's resolved internally you don't need to think about it too much it's the whole jim and pam thing jim um he hates his job he considers it pointless he says it's ridiculous and it's dumb so he spends most of his time doing pranks and whatever but kind of towards the end the the lesson there isn't that this was actually a soul-sucking job that should have never existed because it's pointless it's that actually if you kind of stick it out you know long enough you'll find your soulmate yeah. and you'll find your best friend and you'll be the best man at your former nemesis's wedding and you'll you know stuff like that and that for me is both very interesting slash potentially powerful and also very depressing at the same time like the mm-hmm. two at the same time and it it's those contradictions that I do think works best in shows like this because they have to sell you or they have to transmit or whatever um some kind of emancipatory thing because it's very difficult to sit through something for a very long period of time especially if you need to commit to like seasons um if you know that it's not gonna end well it's all depressing it's all pointless it's all whatever and even in the depressing stuff like bojack horseman there is some kind of of element of it that's kind of emancipatory in the sense that we understand that way. If it's pointless to be a billionaire, what's the point of the capitalist system? You know, if you know, there are these ways you can kind of take those critiques that sometimes even in the show itself are not pursued. And this, this sort of takes me to this other aspect of that's why I'm sort of like, I still read articles being very critical of shows like Friends, like Seinfeld, like especially stuff let's say, written in recent years, like literally past five years or so, I would still read them because like, I'm sort of curious and I'm interested to see the arguments. But I tend not to like too much the accusatory tone that sometimes, not always, but like sometimes are embedded in those, in those pieces. Because it's often like, this is why this is a racist show. This is why this is a transphobic show. And fine, you can watch it if you want, but just be honest with yourself. And I don't think this, this maybe, okay, to take two different roads here and one of whom will kind of not pursue as much like there is the okay an american writing about an american show to an american audience so that's not that's not what i'm reading because i'm not an american audience um 
I'm not part of that audience. But I do think that even if something is very problematic, that is part of you, especially if you kind of consumed it growing up, it, it, it might hurt more to just suddenly ignore that aspect of your life and say like, I'm just gonna exit. I'm just not gonna think about it anymore because there is potential for growth. And this brings me to Harry Potter because Harry Potter for me, I, I sent you a voice note yesterday. I can honestly describe it in a way that Lord of the Rings wasn't because Lord of the Rings was this other big thing growing up, but it was escaping into a fantasy land. Like I wasn't, I didn't want to be the king or the shire folk or the, you know, whatever. It's like, I'm escaping. It's fun to watch. And those are interesting characters and whatever. But with Harry Potter, in many ways, this was my proto-activism ideas, you know, in many ways, like Hermione defending the rights of house elves and um, the, the fighting literally a literal white supremacist figure like the Dark Lord and the whole muggles versus wizards. And if you have muggle parents and all of that stuff. Now, after like after some time, this is literally 20 years ago when I started reading it, 2003 or so, maybe, yeah, around that time, 2003, 2004, I think, if I, if I have my dates right. Um, later, like in the past decade or so, I've read more interesting critiques about Harry Potter. I didn't pay attention too much to the goblins and how they're quite literally like anti-Semitic tropes in those in, in, uh, in the banks, in Gringotts' pants, mm-hmm. and how you shouldn't trust yeah. them and, you know, and stuff like that. And, you know, other characters that are like tokenized minorities and stuff like that. And I still take that in. But what happens now is that when I watch those movies, especially the movies, because it's a visual thing, right? Because when you're reading, you can kind of ignore certain things and interpret it in a different way and kind of make it, make, make it your own. But when you're watching, it's like there's that bit. Oh, you see the, 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 the goblins and you know now that this is clearly an anti-Semitic trope. I just sort of wait for that scene to end. Like I, I just think this is, eh, this is not nice. This is pointless. Let's put move that like or not push it aside, but like let's skip, so to speak. Not literally. I, I just wait it, uh, wait for it to end, and now let's enjoy the rest of the film, the bits that I do enjoy, right? <clears throat> and I do think that thing is interesting. Like it's interesting to have gotten to the point where you're not, you're almost catering what you want to get out of that film or that movie or that series. And I'm not saying that's completely problematic free i don't think that's the case i think it's problematic but i think it's interesting and i think it's more it's worth it let's say to kind of hold that tension and hold that contradiction and to try to understand why you were into it in the first place not coming from a point of from a side of judgment mm-hmm. so like oh you're a bad person because you enjoyed friends like i I, I don't I don't care for that. I don't yeah. think it's very meaningful. So anyway, how do you again? Because Seinfeld, as we mentioned before, the char- the guy himself is a douchebag. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the actor who played Kramer said like racist shit like ten years or twenty years yeah. ago, or whatever. Because also you know that you're not the target audience, as we started saying in the beginning of this conversation. How do you hold that tension and the bits that are offensive? Let's put it that way. What do you sort of do with them? Well, it is really interesting. So, like, yeah, for the instance, for the stand-up, I just skip it. Um, but what I find myself um, thinking about, uh, thinking a lot about is, I mean, yeah, I do think about that tension a lot. And sometimes, okay, when I grew up watching Seinfeld, the thing to do if you liked Seinfeld, because the big things were Seinfeld and Friends, is to mm-hmm. be contemptuous of people that watch Friends. Yes, yeah, I, I, I did know this. I did know this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So just, 
and you know we're the cooler people that like like the smarter humor or the more interesting whatever um and uh yeah like you know friends watchers are normies whereas we're the kind of like eccentric whatever but no it's true and it's i think there's like a debate me bro kind of atmosphere to being like why do you like friends like oh have you have you seen it without a soundtrack like without a laugh track um but no the truth is this holds a lot of this people across the world hold these characters dearly like you were mentioning this big in japan it's big in lebanon friends is huge in japan it's like a thing it's just a huge thing <laughs> i have my cousins as well i have like a an obsession with friends like they I, i've seen them play like a friends trivia game where it's like what's the comeback that joey made to phoebe in that and i was like i, I would like, ace i would ace those quizzes completely <laughs> like i've as i said i've memorized entire episodes and it's like i'll stop on that but like it's how in many ways i related with my sister at one point like, mm. because again it, the dvds were hers so when she put them i would ask her and it just became a thing you know it just became a entirely customizable or customized experience mm. that went beyond the initial intention of the, the writers yeah. of that show yeah no for sure and but and then <clears throat> where i see a lot of like fruitful analysis and place for understanding since it's just a matter of fact we grew up with these things we didn't have much else this is a big component of our lives um but growing up knowing now that this wasn't intended for us but actually these characters would have like don't know anything about us and so my experience, I, I, um, I was, so I grew up in an international school. It was like an American school. And so the thing to do was to go to the U S for school, right. For university. And I was going to go to New York to like upstate New York, which I didn't know was that different from New York city. So mm. I did actually spend a bit of time in New York city, uh, like a couple of weeks before I went upstate, um, well, first of all, I couldn't handle it. It was a terrifying experience. I had a really, really intense, crippling agoraphobia. Mm -hmm. um, quite literally, I, I was just throwing up all the time because I was just terrified of people. Uh, it was also unfamiliar in reality. People are just big. They're just large humans in New York City. They're just seven feet tall. At least I felt... Um, I, I, I When I went, I literally did do the Seinfeld thing. I saw the outside of the cafe, mm. you know, the outside shot. I saw that, uh, that place. I had a black and white cookie. You remember that episode? Mm -hmm. Um, I had an Entenmann's donuts. Literally they're just a tiny bit where Elaine is eating Entenmann's donuts. And I went to a Walmart and I bought it. And whenever I tell American people that I had that, like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> but, um, cause it's just like donuts in a bag. Um, but it was terrifying. And so there was that, there's that big dissonance in my life where growing up, I really thought that I was one of these people. And then I went to the U S and I just discovered I'm absolutely not. And they know nothing about me. When I told people I was from Lebanon, they literally like, it's not a joke thought I meant Arizona because it was just so unfathomable that something like Lebanon exists. Anyway, I, I like saying this because growing up watching Seinfeld, watching all these shows, when I went to the US, I was expecting that I would have a Seinfeld experience. But in fact, I had an experience much more akin to a Tom and Jerry episode <laughs> where um, Jerry leaves Tom. And, and it's a very like philosophical episode because essentially these are antagonistic characters. And so Jerry leaves. He writes him a note like, I'm going to the Big Apple. 
And Jerry, the mouse, goes to the big city and he's just massive buildings, massive people. And, you know, he gets completely destroyed by the city. He ends up getting like knocked onto a hot dog and like flows into the gutter. Genuinely, that was my experience. I'm like a short Arab, whatever. But just like, oh my God, this massive city. And I thought it would eat me alive. And so there's that feeling of also something that I find very interesting that I know F.A. Levant talks a lot about that I think they deal with in Mangal Media. I think it's written in the manifesto, which is as people in the periphery, we all consume these things. And so then we relate to one another through these you know, oh, you're such a, you're such a, uh, you're such a Monica. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But we're using literally things from hegemonic um, cultural imperialist centers uh, to relate to one another. And then it, it distance ourselves from ourselves and from each other, because obviously you're not a Rachel, you know, you didn't grow up in this, uh, in the U S and whatever, and went to this Ivy league school or whatever. Um, and so, yeah, I don't think there's it's necessarily helpful to be dismissive, but rather to examine like what parts of it are still in me, what parts of it are is is it fine to still appreciate? I think there are some bits of of Seinfeld, you know, when he's reaching into the the he opens George opens up the trash can and sees an eclair. Yes, one bite. <laughs> it's in the trash, but there's only one bite. And it's on a bunch of magazines. So he decides, you know what? Fuck it. I want an I And I fucking love eclairs. You know, and he goes and eats it. And his girlfriend's like mom sees him. And then it's the whole bit afterwards of like justifying with his friends. They were like, you know, wait, it was in the trash. You ate trash. And like, no, Jerry, it was above the rim. You know, it wasn't in it. And they're like, what else was in the trash can? Just magazines. And it had a bite in it. Yeah, but I saw who took the bite. You know, I kissed her hello, so it's fine. Like those things I still think I can relate to and I love. And, you know, it's the kind of things I see myself in that. And I think that's fine. Hello. I am still stuck with this distinction between the art and the artist. Like I definitely won't give Seinfeld money, but, you know, and like buy his whatever. I'll stream or whatever, or I'll download and same thing with J.K. Rowling, like you wouldn't purchase any of the new stuff or the games. But then I think that still limits ourselves to this idea that all we are are consumerists and that like mm -hmm. our dollars or whatever. Like aside from that, I think a better example, because at the time I was really into Woody Allen as well. And it's that same kind of like neurotic, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> boy, boy, you know, kind of um, uh, self-deprecating humor. That's a much more real example in terms of like the guy is literally a pedophile, like abuser. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, so even talking about him, um, there is still is difficult. I definitely don't have any conclusions of how to hold those tensions, uh, and, and, and ethically, you know, or to do it in da, da, da. but I will say one thing, mm -hmm. this is an important thing to mention within this whole sphere is that as a closeted queer, as someone who was afraid to come out, as someone who was like, not even afraid to come out, who was like homophobic, you know, was actively against and whatever, because I think in, in retrospect, afraid of what it would mean if I were to come out. Mm -hmm. uh, my big representation 
on TV. Again, there's no social media, no YouTube, no whatever. I couldn't even talk to people because I didn't know anybody and whatever. Uh, was Will and Grace, right? Was Sex in the City. Mm-hmm. Were these very white, liberal portrayals of like gay cis men, you know, mm-hmm. and this is all I had. I, I say this is all I had. It's not true because uh, the alternatives were the things on Lebanese TV, namely Mejdi Wejdi, mm-hmm. which is just openly, ostent- like disgustingly homophobic and transphobic and whatever. Mm-hmm. So it's like between those two poles, this is what I think a lot of us grew up in. And I think Mejdi Wejdi is not just that it's, it's like actively toxic and shitty and whatever. It's just bad. It's just badly written. And that was like a lot of the Lebanese TV we grew up in as well. Like it's just not well written, not well produced. Obviously there are economic and like colonial factors as to why our cultural industries are not allowed to grow. Uh, whereas the cultural centers and the, the econo- are, are, are the economic centers, you know, mm-hmm. I bring this up as well because Lucas, my husband grew up watching German TV and Austrian TV in a protected environment. This was, mm-hmm. There was no ability for the American market to penetrate into it, mm-hmm. whereas we grew up in the free market, like um, wild, wild west, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, so there's so much problematic. Like, that's like growing up, uh, like thinking, oh, I'm more like Will than Jack. You know, Jack, the more flamboyant, hey, kind of gay, you know? And me thinking, no, 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 I'm not like that. I'm more like, you know, straight, kind of like, because will passes as a straight man right he pass he's a lawyer he's fine he's whatever he's a functioning member of capitalist society but he's also gay so it's like it's fine you can still be joe schmo and also love men um and so between these two poles i was identifying with this one but i'm identifying with a man who has nothing in common with me who then in real life when i went and met and now with a lot of the white uh, gay men that I've met, cis men, I can't relate to them at all. I feel very alien by them. So I think there's something really interesting that we do have a lot to examine about these things that are very real within us, that we've grown up with these things. This is how we learn to identify how we saw ourselves and saw our society. And then that disconnect when we discover that that's not true. Mm-hmm. And then the further disconnect when we discover that this is the like cultural empire that is also deeply, deeply Islamophobic, Arabophobic, queerphobic, and whatever, that will only assimilate and include some queer character, some whatever, as long as it's, you know, they're kind of, um, what's the word, defanged. Yeah, yeah, like tokenized as well. Like you'll only have now some bits of like Rami, for instance. Mm -hmm. It's a show that's like openly anti-Zionist, openly anti-Islamophobic, anti-whatever. But... So oh, yeah. let me, I, I don't think there is necessarily a way to resolve those tensions. I think like just by the definition of how they function or how they operate, they're sort of always open-ended. And at some point, it's like you don't really resolve it. You just kind of move beyond it or like you put it aside because you're doing something else now or whatever. You're thinking about something else. But, you know, like I, I genuinely think one of the reasons why I honestly ne- never – Although I grew up in Lebanon in a very close environment or whatever, I had no opinions whatsoever about 
like, or let's put it that way. I never had anything that would connect me to like a homophobic tendency. Mm. It was just not there. And there was just nothing in my, in my personal, like it's, it's literally like before even thinking about the rights and diversity and all of that stuff, my instinct was more, uh, why should I give a shit? It's someone else, like someone else's mm. life. You know, it's very basic like that. Um, and so that's why a lot of the outrage that, again, this whole proto-activism came from, like, stop bothering them. You know, this, this, this instinct of just leave them alone. Because I, and this I understood later, I'm, I grew up autistic and I didn't know it. I wanted to be left alone a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and not quite literally as in, I mean, sometimes literally, but sometimes just in the sense of there are so many of these things that it's needlessly complicated. Like that's how I would approach it. Like this is needlessly complicated. It can be sim- simplified. And so when I, those things I consume TV on TV and whatnot, because obviously parallel to this, I discovered late night show, which is like almost entirely American and the jokes and the debates and the whole, Oh, the wedding cake. Uh, should it, should a Christian have the right to deny a wedding cake to a gay couple? And my instinct to all of this was less, or my reaction was less about, like fuck that dumb religious person it's more like this is too complicated like mm-hmm. you're if you are like literally literally like if you are overthinking about who you're going to sell your cake it's it feels like a waste of life it just feels like a waste of time like there are other things you can do in life than something this dumb like that's how i would approach it like even before getting to the ethical aspect of it and part of why how that kind of became part of me i don't think it's the only reason i think being autistic is part of it as well but i just had this sympathetic character in mind susan and 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 uh susan actually yeah in friends like who was a lesbian and of course still the butt of the joke because friend, literally ross or he gets divorced three times and the first time she ended up being gay and this is end up becoming part of the joke and whatnot but still in the in a weird way kind of felt a bit emancipatory in the sense that he at some point there is a scene where uh, she tells him that her parents don't want to attend uh, their marriage uh, with uh, Susan and, and her uh, partner, whose name I, I'm escaping it. It's escaping me right now. And Ross tells her, uh, like, fuck them. Like, fuck your parents. They, If they don't understand your love or whatever, that's, you know, that's on them. You know, it's their loss. And that made a lot of sense to me. The idea that just, if if someone else living the way they're living bothers you personally, I don't care. Like mm. that's not a legit reason to be to have to say that I have the right to actually stop them from being a gay couple or getting married gaily <laughs> or whatever. Like I, I just never quite understood the effort folks took, like these homophobes and whatnot took to actively go out of their way, take time from their days yeah. to bother someone else and make someone else's life miserable and whatnot that that's that's a that's a side that i never never understood and i was all as far as i can remember i'm sure it started somewhere but i just can't remember but i was always like very very hostile towards i never i never tolerated this that's what it was that those yeah. things i consumed growing up as well that's something i think that i find redeemable about seinfeld mm-hmm. which is a lot of these tensions are internal mm-hmm. right and I, as someone who loves analyzing myself, loves psychoanalyzing myself, loves uh, whatever, um, 
As opposed to something like Family Guy, where it's always someone else that's the butt of the joke. You know, it's Meg. Actually, it's deeply fucking problematic how they abuse Meg. Uh, but also, everyone else is the butt of the joke. And there's this idea that we can make fun of anything because everyone is a, a possible target. But one of my favorite episodes of Seinfeld is the one where George gets a massage from a man. Yes. And, <laughs> and he questions his sexuality. <laughs> no, it's this thing. He goes to Jerry's uh, apartment and he's like, Jerry's like, what's wrong? He's like, well, like, I'm a, a man gave me a massage. He's like, yeah. And he was touching and rubbing. And he's like, yeah, that's what a massage is. And then he looks at Jerry's like, I think it moved. You know, and it's just... <laughs> I like that deep insecurity, and then, um, and then Jerry telling him, "No, that's not the sign. No, it's only if it moves by direct contact." You know, <laughs> there's like internalized homophobia there, but it's really just an insecurity with oneself, uh, and an unsureness and a self-deprecation and a whatever, uh, which I think everyone should have more of. I really don't like confident people. This is why I think Friends for me was never something I could watch because they're all just mm. very confident. And there is yeah, a not, thing they not should... Chandler. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, actually, no. Chandler <laughs> is a classic example of someone who has like an inferior inferiority complex wrapped in a superiority complex. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. There's like that. Yeah. Um, I don't know. You can't be that sarcastic without like thinking you're right. Yeah, 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 yeah. And again, that's why I don't like Jerry. I like George because George is deeply and early George. He later becomes fucked, but like he yeah, is yeah. later George is, is quite something. Yeah. <laughs> and I like, love his yeah. parents. Yeah. His yeah, parents yeah. is so relatable to me. This, this is why I find my, my husband's like my, my, <laughs> my husband's family. They're so nice. No yeah. one yells. <laughs> there is no, not even like get the chair, get the nothing. Yeah, yeah, They're yeah. just kind of nice. Yeah, yeah. Um, but so that's the thing that I still hold close with uh, Seinfeld. But I want to bring up one other point because I think a lot of these discussions of art and artists and whatever is is why I'm a bit okay with some of these accusatory tones. Like I think we're talking about a similar article um, mm -hmm. written by a black, I think, like an or a POC trans uh, queer person, and they're quite angry about friends. Um, I'm fine with it only because again. That still is not my discussion. Like, I'm glad yeah, that's yeah, being yeah, had over sure. there. For sure, for sure, yeah, yeah. But because it's really not on us. Like, we have so much other stuff to deal with <laughs> um, than was it problematic or whatever. Like, the fact that now we see it, I think, is good. The yeah. fact that it's obvious to us now. That mm -hmm. sort of conclusion that James Baldwin made, that Edward mm -hmm. Said made, where it's mm -hmm. like, we should be looking more into the Congolese. You know, Edward Said, the, his earliest, I think his PhD was on joseph conrad mm -hmm. you know you the read darkness, yeah. yeah you read about the the dude going into the forest but you don't into the jungle but not about the people in the jungle yeah. Yeah, whereas yeah. we actually politically socially have much more in common vis-a-vis -vis empire and whatever mm -hmm. but an important thing i grew up in this atmosphere knowing a stupid amount about american politics you a know ridiculous amount Ridiculous, ridiculous. I, yeah, like I actually it. think most most of us, on average, know much more than Americans. I generally think that oh, yeah. on oh, average. Yeah, yeah. And so that's the interesting thing, and I know James Baldwin talks about this. Like, we, uh -huh. it's not that we know more about them than they know about us. We know more about them than they know about themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And so, but then what happened for me when like the Soda broke out in Lebanon? The is, revolution, yeah. 
the revolution, sorry, yeah, um, was not just with all the stuff that I'd learned from John Stewart and from uh, watching American, whatever, literally reading Time magazine, right? Um, because again, it's in Seinfeld, it's in whatever, this is what you do. Um, but, but also like uh, Noam Chomsky and all this stuff, and it's still very American-centric, is when the Third broke out, Revolution broke out and I'm there in the square, I realized I can't talk to my own people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like, not just in terms of, like, I literally don't, I couldn't speak Arabic at the time. Like, my Arabic was actually very weak because, again, the real discussions were about Mitch McConnell, were about, like, the the, the decentralization of whatever, the state-level politics and uh, the Koch brothers and whatever, Koch brothers, um, that I didn't know our politics. I literally didn't know our language. Mm -hmm. And that's a damn shame. But then mm -hmm. that was this, this space where I was like, no, that's where I need to work on. And that's when I started learning Arabic more, like Lebanese colloquial, whatever, mm -hmm. so I can actually engage with people at a local level and talk, just talk. But also learning our politics, knowing more about Nabih Birri than about, um, I don't know, uh, Mitch McConnell, you know? Um, <laughs> both of them. <laughs> yeah, I know both of them. But again, like, why do I know so much about yeah, so many no, jokes? No, for sure, for sure, for sure. Uh, but then also the jokes. Yeah. I know all the you know, tortoise jokes about Mitch McConnell and whatever, mm -hmm. like New First Nations. And, but I didn't know any of the jokes that were being spread about Nabih Um And so I think for me, that's an important thing. And so now I recommend, like, I spend more time trying to engage and understand my own context, my own genealogy, you know, where I, where I do come from. Because, because, mm -hmm. There isn't that track between, you know, Seinfeld and then me and whatever. But there is a track of um, Lebanese comedy or Arab humor or Arab whatever. Mm -hmm. um, so now in my storytelling, when I write, um, I try very much so to write in, in a certain style that I see I come from. And that's why I'm very comfortable rambling, right? That's why I'm very comfortable jumping between story to story. Because that's how I see that like a very Arab sensibility of storytelling right mm -hmm. if you read uh even like Elf Le a thousand one nights um that's a form of storytelling that like we sort of i mean i, I know this is a bit uh, strange to say but but also how my uncle tells stories you know mm -hmm. with the intonation with the fact that the story doesn't really have a strong moral it just kind of goes um, and I think Rabia Alamuddin writes this way. I haven't read any of his books, which I think is, oh, I should. It's a bit uh, hypocritical for me to say that I should like go back to my roots and I haven't read literally a queer Lebanese writer <laughs> who is like apparently writes in this um, style that mm -hmm. I'm writing. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, I think a part of it is like I'm not whenever anybody asks me, like, what films should I watch? I never say like, oh, well, Woody Allen, you have to watch Annie Hall or or whatever it's you know i i do and and i know you do this in your podcast i know you do this in, in person or whatever i think that's a way of resolving some of these tensions that i'm not perpetuating some of the things that i consumed again by nature of availability by yeah, nature yeah, yeah. of uh, accessibility and whatever yeah basically it's also like just accepting or being okay with the fact because this is part of it right and we have to slowly kind of wrap it up like being okay with the fact that something like harry potter and the same thing as like with the simpsons example you mentioned like had its time and should have stopped then 
like literally had to have an end date. And the fact that she keeps on publishing these things and it's just, it's so absurd. It becomes like a caricature of itself. Yeah. I just ignore it. I literally ignore the stuff that she's publishing because I see zero value in them, especially since she came out as this unbelievably obsessive person when it came with like uh, obsessive transphobic person. All of this to say, I think it says a lot, you know, I can kind of wrap it up on my side. Usually, as you know, I always ask guests to recommend three books or whatnot, but I forgot to ask you to do this. So maybe we can just recommend three stuff. Could could be three Seinfeld episodes if you want, or three series or three whatever. And by the way, I think you should watch The Good Place. I think you're going to enjoy it. Is it the one in heaven? Yeah, 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 yeah. The the good place is heaven, the bad place is hell. That's kind of the idea. But um, what I was saying, yeah, okay. I think it's very interesting that through something like Seinfeld, I'm able, we are able, like quite literally, I think we can have a 10 hours long episode in which we're coming in and out of talking about Seinfeld and then jumping from something else, something else, and then still finding something from Seinfeld to talk about. And this, to, to their credit, does speak to good writing you know it does speak to some something of quality has been done here and i'm not i'm not one to kind of completely dismiss that aspect because of the negative sides uh on the author versus art thing i do think as i said it's not entirely resolvable and i think that's part of it i i don't think you can completely separate them i think that's a myth or at least i I disagree with it, but, but I also think you can't completely mix them as well, especially when it becomes a cultural product, because Harry Potter as a cultural product is so different than the seven books that J.K. Rowling herself has written, and even so different than the eight movies that were directed. For one, they were not even the same director. Some actors changed and whatnot. But so much time has passed that those of us who grew up with it, like I quite literally, I started reading the first two Harry Potters in French. And then I couldn't wait for the translation to come out. So I started reading them in English. And that was a huge part of how my English became quite good. And I, I, was, I was that kid, that teenager who went to Virgin Megastore at like 8 a.m. or when the fuck they opened to get the first copy, you know. And so I was that. I literally, I read the book, the fifth book, I think, in, in like 20 hours sitting straight. Like I didn't move other than to go to the toilet, you know, like... And this kinds of of binge reading and being really into something, I do think is valuable. And in a very complicated way, it's it's this additional, I'm not trans, so it's not as personal in that sense, but I can feel almost the the hurt that a trans person who read Harry Potter growing up and is really into it and whatnot, then sees the, like how alienating that can be, right? So anyway, all of this to say that those tensions, I, I try and keep them uh, in as in like to the extent that I find them useful. At some point, if you're just keeping it for decades, it ends up being hurtful. But just to the extent that like, okay, there is a tension. I want to recognize that there is a tension. What can I do about it now? Rather than instead of just saying, fuck it, and I'm, I'm just going to hate it or whatever, which again, is a completely legit thing to do. I don't think any, uh, like the office... No one is owed uh, in the sense that the office doesn't owe anyone their attention or the other way around. You know what I mean? Like no one, no one has to watch Friends. No one has to like Harry Potter. Like none of this matters in that sense. It's just that, you know, some other thing you can consume if you want. But it's just interesting that certain people who end up becoming very different people are really into the same thing. Like mm. Star Trek, um, I'm a Trekkie. It's, I'm obsessive about Star Trek. But at the same time, there are like horrific pieces of shit who are really into Star Trek. 
And I can't just deny that. You know, I can't just say, oh, no, they're not real Trekkies. That's the whole no true Scotsman thing. Like, no, they are, clearly. But fuck them still. <laughs> you know? Like, it's not, those things exist at the same time. Anyway, I'm going to stop now. Uh, give us your final thoughts. And uh, if you have some recommendations, shoot them. Otherwise, it's fine. Um, yeah, I think actually The Simpsons is a good thing to sort of finish on in terms of yeah. uh, talking about cultural empire and, and capitalism and because um, it's on the 30th season now and it's the kind of thing where you know how there's this saying I think it's either Jameson or something of it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism mm-hmm. I think you can also say the same about the Simpsons like when <laughs> is the Simpsons going to end it, it can just keep going on infinitely in terms of like, like capitalist production like if it keeps making money you know, it, it can just keep going on and on and on and on. Uh, there's no, like, natural end. Um, I'm really upset because every time I listen to one of your episodes, I hear those recommendations and I think, well, can I recommend? And so I completely forgot to, like, actually sit down and... Um, I, I, for, I mean, we uh, to be clear, we're recording this on, what is what is today? Uh, January 29th on Sunday at, like, I don't know, 3 p.m., whatever. And I, I came up with this about 24 hours ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I just woke up. Uh, <laughs> so, okay, in terms of uh, film or TV, I would really recommend... Um, so the first season of Rami was huge for me, right? The second season was a bit problematic, but I think the first season had so many interesting things that... I haven't seen it yet, actually. I will even oh, I, I recommend... The first season is just... It was great. It was fantastic. It dealt with so many things that I was just like unabashedly like did it in such ways where it wasn't this like co-opted whatever or 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 defanged um there's also the film wajib which i rewatched by anne-marie jasset palestinian filmmaker which i just hold so close to me it's genuinely one of my favorite films um that's now, the, is that the one we watched the, no that's not the one right yeah yeah, yeah. Oh, that's the one that's the one yeah that's yeah. a really good film it's fantastic i, I love it and um uh it deals with so many of these things in such interesting new ways um Anyway, um, so in terms of books, though, I'm going to try and keep it short. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm actually not much of a reader, but the things that I do have, I hold very close. I think of the things that I mentioned, I think Edward Said's autobiography, Out of Place, Out of Place, yeah, yeah. You know, is actually was really transformative for me. And I was reading it in a very important time of my life because um, of these distinctions that we're talking about so much. I mean, even it's embedded in his name, Edward Said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but Joey, anyway. Joey Ayub, Habibi. Joey Ayub, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Joey Hassan Ayub, yeah. Joey Hassan um, Ayub, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I really love uh, Guapa mm-hmm. by Salim Haddad. I thought that was one of the first books for me that was um, very much so like where I was at plus five years in terms mm-hmm. of my issues of having grown up with this language, with this exposure, with this representation, but then realizing whatever. And so I really felt so seen by that book and just openly gay and openly whatever, and uh, openly aware of this like conflict of like mental colonization in an Arab space. Uh, Another one, Beer in the Snooker Club by Wagia Ghali is like a treasure that I recommend to everybody. Uh, it's written in the 50s. It's set during the Suez crisis. And mm-hmm. again, to me, and written in English. And so, again, has these uh, elements within it that um, I just find so fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, and my last recommendation, only because I'm reading a lot of her now, is 
um, Fatima Al-Marnise. I'm reading a book of hers called uh, Shahrazad Goes West. Mm -hmm. And it deals with this concepts of um, sort of having had grown up in a harem, in a harem, um, and then going to the West as a, as a writer, as an author, and being asked about it by white men journalists who smile when, oh, you actually grew up in a harem? Mm. And she writes this whole book about why were they smiling? What is the harem in their mind? And then who is the, and then, and then obviously they're dealing with this idea of the Shahrazad in their mind and that the depictions of Shahrazad, you know, and that Shahrazad in American TV and films are, is like a sexy uh, physical figure. Whereas actually the Shahrazad, as she exists in Arab literature and in like Sawana literature, is a, a talker, is an intellectual person, is a person who uses words and stories to subvert uh, the the male hegemonic, literally, genet, like you know, um, uh, femicidal regime. Mm -hmm. You know, this is the, the the myth of the Thousand Nights that she mm -hmm. saves all Muslim women with her mind. Mm -hmm. uh, but the West, certain depictions of her don't see that. Anyway, I love it. It's been a, an amazing read, and I just love her style and how accessible it is, and how she weaves like her own experience and her own thoughts in this academic piece. But it's um, it's really great. And I just really appreciate it. And, um, it has been my way of also like getting into this genealogy that I was talking about of like our writers and, and, you know, as a Moroccan writer, there's like, it's, it's, it's a bit whatever, but anyway, so those are my recommendations. I really hope that five minutes after this, I don't immediately think like, shit, I should have mentioned that. Oh, this always happens. <laughs> Can I edit? Can I? <laughs> just if I send me the names, I'll put them in the show notes. Yeah, it's fine. Can you ADR it? Yes. Just like, yes. <laughs> uh, let me say a few things. Um, there is a book called Comedy Against Work, Utopian Longing in Dystopian Times by Madeline Lane McKinley. So I haven't read it yet, but I am currently finishing an episode that uh, I'm assuming she was invited on uh, the podcast uh, Seriously Wrong. Uh, see, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll put this in the show notes. And the podcast is the title is called Comedy Against Work, and she's the main guest. And a the podcast as a, as a series, I would just highly recommend it. It's a fantastic podcast. Mm -hmm. But that episode, it's part of why we're doing this now. Like she was talking so much about uh, the office, and that lent me down like this rabbit hole of thinking about Seinfeld and other stuff as well. Um, so that's one thing. The other thing is I'll mention that Salim uh, is a friend of the pod, and the Salim Haddad, like he's been here, he's been on twice. The first time was to talk about Guapa, or the second time. I don't remember which one. I think second time actually. Um, so folks can check that out if they want. And uh, last thing is, I'm, I'm yeah, I'm also getting into the Shahzad gone uh, goes to the west, gone west. Goes uh, west yeah. yeah, made me think of the uh, recent trend, or like in the past decade or so, of rewriting ancient stories. And I just finished reading uh, Circe or Circe by Madeline Miller, a retelling of uh, Circe, who's like the a Greek. Uh, um, nymph a witch whatever um a fascinating book kind of basically from her perspective like in that sense and she madeline miller wrote the song of achilles which is more famous i think but um i love these retelling of old uh, myths and ancient histories and whatnot in ways that are not just very interesting creatively but in in a way that also makes in like there there is like an internal coherence to them in mm -hmm. the sense that it actually makes sense that uh Circe, who has talked about 
by let's say uh, the, in the Homeric poems or whatever that this is actually what is going through her mind because a lot of these female characters obviously are written by men or talked about by men at the time before they were written and then collected and whatnot. Uh, and because of that, there are lots of things that you miss. Mm-hmm. And so, and the last thing I would recommend as well is there's a podcast called Let's Talk About Miss Baby, <laughs> uh, which is an amazing podcast. I was going to do a collab with her at some point, but uh, we kind of lost track. So maybe I'll pick it up at some point. And also retelling these things. And she has this amazing series on Atlantis and the myth of the myth of Atlantis and how it's never even been a myth. It's actually a conspiracy mm-hmm. theory that gets popped up and it's intersected with white supremacy. Like it's a fa- fascinating um uh series um and she uh what's what's the other thing i'm thinking of she has a thing for for assassin's creed which is just fun because there's one on ancient Greece. but yeah and she has she talks a lot about i think it's medusa if i'm not mistaken of how medusa is a misunderstood character in those stories and how like there's no evidence actually in those stories the original stories that she is anything bad whatsoever. Like she literally, some guy says that she's horrible and she, he decides he needs to go and kill her and whatever. So she talks a lot about that, which is fine. And the last thing, I know I said last thing, but there's a podcast called Witch Please, as in Bitch Please, but Witch Please. Mm. And it's about, that's the one about Harry Potter. It's a fascinating uh, episode. Each, each episode is on a different theme. They have one on hauntology, uh, which I use in my research, like as in the stuff that they mentioned, I, I used it. And they recently did an episode on Iran with the same two guests that I myself uh, invited uh, when I did the, the episode on Iran, which is which is, will be out at some point. So anyway, I'll mention all of this as kind of just to reinforce the idea that, uh, or to yeah, emphasize that you can start from something that seems kind of random or not um, meaningful even, like, oh, why are you talking about friends? That's dumb, you know, stuff like that. But you kind of take it elsewhere. And that for me, that's more, it's a more interesting, even more empowering way of approaching it than just good, bad. And speaking of, that's why you should watch The Good Place. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Okay. We'll end on that. Uh, Ayman, thanks a lot for doing this. This was super fun. No, thank you for having me. Defy These Times is hosted by myself, Joey Ayoub. I am also its producer, researcher, writer, and sound editor. If you want to help turn this project into a full-time job, please head out to patreon.com slash times to support it. These episodes are part of a bigger project which includes resources, a newsletter, and eventually YouTube video essays as well. As always, thank you for listening and take care. <laughs>